0: Bradley, yeah, I'm a clown, huh.
1: This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Hello, hello guys! Welcome to the first episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. This episode is actually recorded a couple months previously with a friend of mine, J.W. Weatherman. You may or may not know him as The Wookiee. In this episode, JW and I talk a lot about cypherpunks and sort of the history of digital currencies and all of the things that preceded Bitcoin and Satoshi Nakamoto, and we talk about Bitcoin and a little bit about altcoins as well, so make sure you listen all the way to the end. This is a great episode. It's one of my favorite conversations that I've had with somebody so far, and don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast on any of your favorite podcast catchers that you might be listening to this on. It definitely really helps us out, helps us get exposure. This is a new podcast, and we're trying to gain traction as quickly as we can can so thanks for listening guys and i'll talk to you again at the end and today i have a very special guest actually live from the planet of kashik he's a wookie uh my friend jw weatherman jw how you doing man
0: good good man thanks for having me on
1: uh, looking forward to this now how's the reception
0: out there on kashik at the moment <laughs> it's it's not bad it's not bad we got a, a pretty good uh, pretty good satellite uh internet connection that defies the speed of light so
1: it's better kept. than google fiber
0: yeah, yeah. Otherwise, the latency would be terrible. Oh, right,
1: right, minutes, of, course, you know, of course. Plus, that's just to the sun, I think. Oh, So <laughs> if none of you guys know who J.W. Weatherman is, uh, you're kind of missing out because he's kind of a hidden gem right now in the cryptocurrency space. This guy doesn't have a lot of followers on YouTube, but uh, he knows what's going on around here a lot more than a lot of the people that are a lot more popular. Um, J.W., so I'm trying to remember the first time I saw your name and your uh, face I guess you could call it I think it was the Bitcoin threat model right
0: yeah that was pretty much the time where I, this was about a year ago and that's really what got me into uh, into Bitcoin in the first place or cryptocurrency um, I I've been you know creating companies and doing software startups for a long time and so you know you, you kind of have short periods of downtime but uh, but've been you know, relatively busy, and uh, so I sold the company not not long ago, and had some downtime, and finally got around to looking into Bitcoin, uh, which I was mostly looking to debunk um, because the the talking points that I had been hit with from people that were sort of in the you know, software security space that we're into it, were really not very cogent. Um, so I was told stuff like, Oh, you know, it's got value because it consumes a lot of electricity or mm-hmm. it's completely unhackable. You know, I can never have a security <laughs> and mm-hmm. to a sec- somebody that's worked in the software security industry for 20 plus years. I mean, you just immediately dismiss that because sure. it's, uh, it sounds absurd. Um, so it was kind of on my back burner, like, oh, I'll look into this. Um, And uh, so yeah, it was about a year ago that I published the Bitcoin threat model. And what a threat model is, is basically a systematic uh, walkthrough of all the ways you could try to break software and the things that are built into the software, the safeguards that should prevent that from happening. Um, And so when I did that, I really expected to debunk it, right? I expected to find some flaws. And I, you know, I knew it had been around a long time. I knew it had a lot of uh, you know, value on the network and that it hadn't really been hacked. Um, and all the way back to Dan Kaminsky, I think did the first sort of security review of Bitcoin, um, you know, outside of the guys that were working on it anyway, hmm. or at least he was the first kind of uh, semi-famous software security guy, I guess that did a review of it anyway. So I knew that there was, I, I didn't expect it to be super easy, but I was pretty sure that there was a problem there that, uh, that was glaring. And, mm-hmm. um, but when I finished the Threat Model, I was like, gosh, this is pretty freaking incredible. Like, yeah. it's really one uh, one impressive uh, piece of piece of software. Um, and that was about a year ago, and that's, that's when I got involved and, and published that doc and bought a little bit of Bitcoin and sort of have been obsessed with it ever since.
1: Hmm. I, I think a lot of people kind of catch the Bitcoin fever that same way. You know, they come into it, like, really skeptical, like, okay, this sounds stupid. And then they start looking into it, and they're like, Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, you're up until 2 a.m. reading blog posts from 10 years ago about yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin. And uh, it's, it's it really, I think the mythos of the space is kind of what has captivated me the most. Because there's just so much interesting history and so many interesting people that have contributed to this project. I mean, you know, the tech is cool and the economics of it is cool, but it's kind of got like its own culture and mythos around it, too, which I I found really interesting. Um,
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the cypherpunk movement is really sort of the historical roots of Bitcoin. And uh, I've got a I've got an interview on my YouTube channel. If you go out to. Um, YouTube.com forward slash JW Weatherman Show. Um, there's a, there's an interview I did with Timothy C May, um, who's an old school cypherpunk guy, really kind of the, I don't know, sort of the head statesman sort of mm-hmm. of uh, the cypherpunk movement um, from back in the '90s. And uh, that movement was all about trying to basically create, use technology to create like a galt's gulch, right? Mm-hmm. Like an environment where uh, people could trade freely and exchange and be outside of, uh, you know, create a system that wasn't driven by violence. Um, and a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, well, you know, we, we have a pretty peaceful society, especially if you're in a Western country. But the reality is, you know, a lot of your wealth is being Taken from you, a lot of the information that you have access to is being censored. Mm-hmm. Uh, the you know it, it is it is a very uh, it is a very coddled, controlled, non-real environment that we're all living in. Absolutely. and that was pretty obvious, um, you know, way back in the '90s. And so, what these guys were trying to do is they were trying to build technology that would allow for people to have conversations without fear of violence, to be able to exchange value, right, to be able to buy and sell things, including information, um, and to create, uh, you know, a a more private, more free internet, right, was the idea. and that's where Bitcoin came from, right? It came out of that movement. The holy grail for those guys was always a secure digital cash. Right. And guys like Adam Back and Tim May and Nick Zabo, these guys were all working on this for 30 years, right? right? So it's not like Bitcoin just popped up and then Ethereum popped up and replaced it. There's a, there really is a long, rich history and a deep philosophy behind it, right? These yeah. guys have, um, have put a lot of thought into figuring out what the government is and how does it really relate to normal people. And how can we organize a society that has, you know, laws that are actually about restitution, right? Just as a random example, if you commit a crime against somebody, if you beat somebody up, the number one concern of a government is not that you pay that person back and make them whole, right? The concern of the government is that you've, you've attacked this asset which is weird, right? It just mm-hmm. kind of shows that we're treated as cattle and you need to make payments to the owner of that asset. Well, right. who's that? It's the state. It's not the actual individual that's been hurt. Right. So there's lots of little sort of cracks in the walls of the matrix like that, that you can look at. And those guys just spent a lot of time thinking about that and putting those cracks together and then coming up with a way to yank us all out of the matrix, which is what, uh, what electronic cash can
1: do. I, I want to touch on two things you just said. Um, one, Nick Zabo is like my hero. I want to be, Nick Sabo when I grow up. That he you wanna talk about a sharp guy. Man, he's awesome. Um, but actually the cypherpunk movement, you know, it's funny because cryptocurrency has kind of been I don't want to call it like a social attack because I'm not so sure that that's necessarily what it is, but it's kind of been co-opted by people who think it's apolitical, that Bitcoin is apolitical, that it has no political motivations, that it's completely like it's on its island of isolation, you know, and that it has no... But the reality is, is that The guys behind the technology that led up to what Bitcoin is today were very politically motivated. And not just that. I didn't realize um, that not all the cypherpunks were conservative libertarians like I am, like I would have assumed that they were. And your channel actually revealed that to me because a lot of these interviews you've done with guys um, like Tim May. uh, I'm trying to think of who the other one was. uh, The guy who did all the work on the oil rig, the offshore oil rig.
0: Uh, yeah, gosh, I feel bad that I, let's see, he is, he's right, oh man, I'm talking to him and his wife every week, but I get on these interviews and certain parts of my brain just shut off, so, uh, let me look at my channel real quick, uh, man, playlists, there it is,
1: Bill Scannell, sorry, Bill, Bill. sorry, uh, Mrs. Scannell, Michelle, I believe, and these are guys who, They've been involved in, like, you want to, like, rewind history a little bit, and you start talking about, like, distributed peer-to-peer networks and, like, torrenting and Napster and, like, uh, sovereignty over Internet usage and, like, all kinds of things that were going on, like, before my time, right? Because I'm pretty young, but... And not all of these guys agree ideologically, which I found kind of surprising.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you had guys like Tim May that, uh, that, in my view, were super... Consistent uh, ideologically, right, and they they connected all the dots, and they they knew why things needed to happen. But then you had a lot of other guys that that made huge contributions, like um, like Wit Diffie. Uh, he is responsible for us being able to do any e-commerce, right? Like public key cryptography came out of this guy's work. Um, but he is way more concerned with just privacy in general, right? And and from my perspective, I think he's just inconsistent, right? He doesn't see the full implications of creating a private internet because he's still kind of a a statist, right? Like he still thinks that government needs to exist and you know that you know uh, to to some degree we need to have taxation and all of these things that um, that I don't think will be functional um, and certainly are not enhanced right like maybe they can survive but if you think that we need to have a world where ultimately the state is in control of everything uh, it doesn't really make sense to build privacy technologies but one of the one of the brilliant parts of the cypherpunk movement is you had guys kind of at the core of the ideology and uh, the core of the movement that were super consistent, but they didn't exclude people that didn't quite get it, right? Mm-hmm. You were, you, they were more than happy to have you show up and build an algorithm or build some code That actually delivered on the mission, even if you didn't know, uh, you know, why you were doing it to some degree, or at least you weren't as consistent uh, in their view uh, with the implications of that action. So it was, you know, there was a lot of talk about privacy, but from, uh, you know, if you read the Cyphernomicon or the FAQ or the mailing list or anything like that, there's a reason there was a lot of interest in guns, right? There was a lot of second amendment guys. And if you think about the weird overlap between, uh, you know, like redneck second amendment guys and San Francisco cryptographers, there's not a whole lot of overlap, but for some reason there was a lot of overlap with those guys on the, on the mailing list. And that's because they were very much
1: hardcore, um, anarcho-capitalist, uh, libertarian libertarian types. Yeah. The objectivists. Um, and, I've actually really admired a lot of your interviews just because you tend, at least it seems to me like you like to talk with people who fundamentally disagree with you on a lot of the conclusions that you make. And that's really frustrating, particularly because I've found that a lot of arguments they're not because you disagree on the conclusions. They're because you disagree on the entire fundamental basis of the argument. And you tend right. to do a really good job of distilling down misconceptions that people have about the simple way that we define a word can make us disagree at the conclusion of an argument a hundred steps later. And if we don't go back to the beginning and agree on a definition of the word, we're not going to get anywhere. And um, a lot of people resist that attempt at debate because they're watching their Uh, Logical, The logical basis that they've built up their arguments on fall apart before their eyes, and that's kind of a frustrating thing to deal with in real time. And I I think that that's why a lot of your interviews are so captivating is because you try to reveal the holes that people have in their logical conclusions, but in doing so, people become kind of resistant to what you have to say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think,
0: I mean, one of the things that I like about the cypherpunk movement is it was so focused on just building code, right? Like one of the things that Tim May uh, says in the interview, um, and this is, you know, this is a major part of their philosophy was it doesn't make sense to go around setting up card tables, right? Uh, And and what he means by that is you don't go to like, uh, you know, yet another political rally, set up a card table and hand out flyers. That's not how we're going to change the world. And to some degree, I think that, Education isn't really how we're going to change the world either, right? Like that, that, that's sort of like low grade political education. Maybe you're just handing out flyers, but even something a little bit more advanced um, on the education front isn't the best way to do it. The best way to do it is just to build tools and technology, right? We could have we could have tried to lecture and tried to help people understand the importance of ending the federal reserve and going back to the gold standard for thousands of years, right? Like we would have never made any progress on that. Uh, but if we create Bitcoin and Bitcoin actually works and it's functional and it's government hard and people just use it and like it, you know, when you're in Venezuela, it's something that you can run to. Um, another thing that the cypherpunk movement said a lot was the street finds a way, right? Or the, uh, the street finds a Ah, man, I'm forgetting it. The street finds a use was the idea. So mm-hmm. you build something like BitTorrent, you don't really even know exactly what it's going to be used for, but you know it empowers the individual, and you just put it out there. And you can save yourself a ton of lectures and a ton of YouTube videos, and a ton of you know, effort trying to convince people logically of the importance of allowing people to be free, or you can just, boom, make them free. right? You just release some software into the wild that, that can never be taken back.
1: And, and I think Bitcoin is a really good example of um, the first like really, really tangible experiment that we've ever seen in Austrian economics, because this is where the rubber meets the road. We're going to find out if we're right. You know what I mean? Like because if we are if we are right, if. Bitcoin is what it was designed to be. If um, whoever invented it and all the guys that preceded him, Satoshi, you know, their understandings of economic game theory and Austrian economics and the flow of commerce and those types of things. If, if they're right, it's not going to matter if everybody understands it because it's just going to work. You know, on a long enough timeline, it's going to be the best money and there's nothing you could do about it. If, if you want to try to fight it, it's a losing battle.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why one of the things I had to do in the Bitcoin threat model was to find what Bitcoin is. Um, because when you're doing threat models for software, uh, normally the concern is the shareholders, right? Like there's this asset, if it's destroyed, who's going to be hurt by it? You know, the users, yes, but you're hired by the shareholders. Um, you're hired by the owners of the company to make sure that the software that the company is putting out is secure, right? So you look at, well, if somebody breaks it in this way, how is that going to damage the people that own the company? How is that going to damage the shareholders? But with something like Bitcoin or really any open source software, you can't really define it as that, right? Because there are no shareholders. So if Bitcoin is damaged, who is actually hurt by it? Like, What is the thing that's being damaged? And you can't say that it's software in the sense that it's not like a specific set of software. It's not like a GitHub repo, right? Like a lot of people have said, oh my gosh, if somebody takes over the GitHub repo for Bitcoin, they can, you know, do terrible things. It's so such a stupid misunderstanding of what Bitcoin is because if somebody deleted the, Bitcoin, the, the, the GitHub repo, Um, there's a lot of people, including me, that have the (laughs) the Bitcoin source code
1: ready to go. Right. Right. Uh, That's stored on our laptops or stored on our desktops. And Um, that's like the most fundamental misunderstanding of Bitcoin is that nobody understands the node distributed governance thing. I mean, I don't know why. And probably part of that is on purpose because... Um, A lot of the scams in cryptocurrency, they capitalize on that lack of understanding like, oh, the mining's too centralized or, oh, um, this protocol is going to do better at distributing government. No, you can't. (laughs) Bitcoin has far, far more nodes distributed than any other cryptocurrency protocol. It's not even close. And then, you know, the economic incentives of the mining. I was uh, listening to a conversation you had earlier today about uh, the economic incentives for the security of the network, that's that's another disconnect people have is they, they see the Bitcoin network and they say, oh, look at all this electricity and value that's being wasted. Um, we need something that's tied to potential energy or um, we need to tokenize electricity and put that on a blockchain. They don't understand is that... Uh, the proof of work consensus is to economically incentivize people to provide the security to the network. That's the fundamental most value part of Bitcoin. And then after that, you have the intrinsic value of a sensorless global network.
0: Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that I would recommend everybody do is just read the Bitcoin threat model, even if you just read the table of contents, and you can get to that at jwweatherman.com. And just think about all of these threats and how they would apply to whatever your crypto, your favorite cryptocurrency is, right? Like how is dash going to resist, uh, you know, a specific attack? Like how is dash going to keep the government from shutting it down? Uh, if, if they want to, how is dash going to prevent double spending attacks? How is da- <laughs> like, whatever it's, it's all really, really uh, laughable. Um, because the way that Bitcoin works is it has this element where in order to, uh, in order to double spend, right, in order to change history, you have to invest an incredible amount of money, which means that you're you're using up something that has real tangible economic value outside the system, you know, namely electricity. So that's, that's what matters, right? That's the security model. So if somebody's spending $12 million a day, I think that's roughly what we're spending right now in order to secure all of the transactions on the Bitcoin network. That's actually pretty cost effective. I mean, it, it might not be ideal right now when we only have a market cap of a hundred billion and we're spending twelve million a day. It's it's okay though, because what we're really doing is we're saying, yeah, this would be stupid if we were just going to stop it at 100 billion. But the whole idea is we're going to 100 trillion. And if it costs 12 million or $120 million a day to create a global secure money that's worth $120 trillion and completely freeze the economy from all of this crazy manipulation, I mean, the amount of human productivity that's destroyed by the Federal Reserve is incalculable. Like they're constantly creating these booms where we invest in all kinds of things that nobody wants. And then they're, not able to sustain that nonsense. They're like, their theft rate has to be reduced. So the interest rate goes up. And then we realize that all this stuff we built was garbage, right? We have all these houses in California that nobody wants to live in. Um, and, and then, you know, we have years and years of economic destruction, right? Like people are working their whole lives. They get to the point where they're in their 60s where they're about to retire. And if the Federal Reserve, if they haven't timed things right with the Federal Reserve deciding when they're gonna steal and when they're not gonna steal as much, Then they don't get to retire, right? They have to work until they're seventy. Now Mm -hmm. that amount of like chaos and confusion that's created, if we can get rid of that for twelve million dollars a day or one hundred and twenty million dollars a day on a global basis, is incredibly valuable. Like that is the best environmental solution that anybody has ever come up with, Uh, because the only thing that we really lack is human creativity, right? If we um, if we're having problems with damaging the environment, that's because we haven't had anybody smart enough to figure out how to do that without damaging the environment yet, right? And those people are greatly hindered. All the engineers are hindered by all of this chaos that's introduced. Um, so if we can eliminate that for 120 million bucks a day, that would be in, that would be the most environmentally friendly, most cost effective thing that anybody's ever done in the history of the world. Absolutely. Uh, and if somebody can come up with a way to do that without spending one hundred and twenty million bucks a day, great. But so far, nobody has even come close to coming up with anything that's viable. right? All they've done is they've presented flawed systems as legitimate so that non-technical people get suckered into buying garbage.
1: And boy, do they? Um, like so we had a conversation. we do a team stream every Friday on decentralized TV, and we got on this big conversation last week or this past Friday. About it was after the stream shut off. We were just talking amongst ourselves about Ripple, um, and one of the things that Ripple tend to be most deceived by is like, oh well, they're they're working with the banks. They're building these relationships with the banks. What happens if the central banks say, okay, Ripple is the new global currency? Well, then we end up right back where we're at right now, and they still they still can't beat Bitcoin because it's not as secure. It's not as economically sound. It it. And not only that, but the central banks are not going to give up their ability to print money and give it to Ripple. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, they're going to make oh. their own... It, the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to make their own digital currencies and they're going to try to enforce those. But what they don't understand is that that's just a stepping stone to global Bitcoin adoption because now they're setting the narrative that digital currencies are the future. So, like we, like I said, if you understand the economic game theory behind these things, it doesn't matter at the end of the day whether or not... Cause uh, I think you said the other day, XRP is like a band-aid on the current financial system. It might prolong their life for another twenty years, uh, but it's not going to be Bitcoin.
0: No, no, that would have been somebody else, man. Because XRP is just completely retarded. Like it, it absolutely does nothing. So, it's really hard to. It's really hard for me to. One of the reasons that I created the Bitcoin class that I that I made at, uh, or the cryptocurrency class. If anybody's interested, it's at jwweatherman.com forward slash class uh c-l-a-s-s um is that it's really hard for me to uh to bring everybody up to speed like on twitter uh like the, the, the bitcoin threat model is great it will help a lot um but it's it's hard for uh, it's hard for people to totally come up to speed on all the economics and all the technology involved that gets you to a point where you go, "Oh, Bitcoin works." Mm-hmm. Um, and something like XRP, the way that I try to deal with XRP or Ethereum or any of these things is not necessarily trying to help everybody understand why they're broken, but just to say, look at the look at the rhetoric of the promoters, right? Um, look at the stories that these guys are telling. Because even what the people that are saying even the people that are saying it's awesome those people expose its own flaws right so people like uh that are promoting ripple or ethereum they'll say hey we don't need to be resistant to the government we're working with the government right and so what you should get from that is not that that makes sense but what you should get from that is that they don't even believe the system is government resistant themselves right the promoters of the thing don't believe that it could stand up to an attack by government So you can take that and connect that to what problem are we solving here? The U.S. dollar is already digital. The only problem we're solving is we're trying to make a money that is government resistant. Mm -hmm. And they've just said that it's not government resistant. So that's all you need to know about Ripple, Ethereum, and all of these other uh, cryptocurrencies that are just pretending to provide value that don't provide anything. Absolutely. And
1: Bitcoin's the only one. Really? Because we've even seen like Ethereum doesn't have a real hard cap. I know, you know, we know for a fact Ripple doesn't have a hard cap. If they wanted to print 200 billion more Ripple tomorrow, they could do it. Uh, They're not going to do it right now because that goes against the narrative that they're trying to purport, which is this decentralized Bitcoin alternative. Um, But my thought kind of went out the window there. <laughs> that's all right, man. That's all right.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the the thing with uh, Ripple is, I mean, I'll go into it a little bit more. I mean, big picture though, you already know what you need to know that it's garbage. You already know that uh, that it's not government hard, and that the only purpose of cryptocurrencies is to create something that's government hard. Right. But um, but to to go, I don't know, to add a little bit more color to it, what. The whole scheme with Ripple is basically they have a consulting company and a currency and allow people to confuse the two. So there's a consulting company called Ripple, mm. and what they do is they go out and convince com- banks like BBVA. Um, so their, their biggest claim to fame is that they did a pilot with BBVA. I've had companies that have done pilots with BBVA. BBVA is the easiest bank to do a pilot with because they pride themselves on being very technology oriented, right? And so they have a team of people that will do a pilot with just about anybody that has slight credibility, right? And they're not going to spend any money, but what they will do, BBVA being a smart, smart bank, is they'll say, yeah, come in, do a pilot, which means come in, work for free, educate us on anything that you think that you have to offer, build a prototype. Uh, but we're not we're not spending any money, right? Like we're not dedicating engineers. As BBVA, we have no skin in the game. But this is your opportunity to come in and pitch us that you have a solution for us. That's that's what a pilot means with BBVA. Um, and so that's what Ripple did. They got uh, the consulting company was able to convince BBVA to do a pilot on something to do with you know transferring money. The end result of that pilot. Uh, was BBVA said, this is retarded. We have no interest in doing that. Thanks for stopping by and giving us your pitch. But you you didn't provide anything that has any value. Um, and incidentally, that whole pilot had absolutely nothing to do with the cryptocurrency. They didn't use it. They didn't suggest it made sense. Uh, BBVA would have laughed them out of the room but it was a good way to con a lot of non-technical people into thinking that there was something happening with BBVA that involved Ripple, the cryptocurrency. And and of course it pumped. Um, But that's it, right? Like that was the whole story. And if you want to look it up, you can, you can search for BBVA Ripple. And I believe the guy that runs the pilot program came out and said very publicly, like, look, we have no interest in Ripple, the cryptocurrency. We're not sure exactly how all this confusion started, but, we're not doing anything with these guys right like we, they 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 came in they did a pilot we found it uninteresting and that's the end of the story um so you know that's for people that need a little bit more color but again the the math is simple right like 1 minus 1 equals 0 uh it's not government hard it doesn't even try to be or claim to be and that's the only reason that a cryptocurrency should exist because otherwise we already have digital dollars we already have digital euros Um, The only reason that we don't have things like irreversible transactions and other stuff that now maybe we will get through the, you know, Gemini stable coin thing. Um, Although I can't, I still don't understand how these guys think that this is going to work, but it it seems like the government's giving them a little bit of rope. Uh, We'll see how long that takes before they get back. But, um, but, you know, that. That's one way to do it. But the other way is just for the ACH system and all of the mechanisms that we have right now, just to say, okay, we're going to change our policy, right? Like it's one line of code uh, to say now transactions are not reversible where they used to be reversible up to 30 days. It's not even like probably a line of code. There's probably something like a number that represents the number of days. And you just go in and change that from 30 to zero. And now ACH has all of the same features of Ripple, right? Like. It's it's a it's a policy decision, not a uh, technology issue, that has made our banking system suck, and that's because they want it to suck. Uh, and so, if you're going to be beholden to the same politicians and the government that's creating all these policies, you're going to have to submit to all the policies that make the system suck in the first place. Like, <laughs> this is not a this is not a technical challenge. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Uh, I, yeah, the Ripple thing it. You know, if we're being honest, those are the the people that are getting suckered into that are going to be probably the ones hurt the most um, by this whole thing, and uh, that that to me, I don't want to say it's discouraging because I know it's a it's a economic redistribution of misallocated capital. Uh, but uh, right. at the end of the day, it's I I think it was Nick Zabo who said that the only real the only real ways to harm Bitcoin are sociological and geopolitically. Uh, the attack vectors. It's the only place that really makes sense to try to come in and uh, disbar the movement, so to speak. And I Ripple's done a pretty good job at that, and they've made a heck of a lot of money in the process. Uh, yeah. And that's certainly unethical, at least in my mind.
0: Yeah, I, I can't think of anything much worse than trying to keep humanity in the chains of central banking. I mean, it really does. A lot of people that haven't studied Austrian economics don't really understand because they, the narrative of central banking is that we need to be able to speed up and slow down the economy because people have all these animal spirits or this, you know, this crazy uh, blind exuberance that takes over. That's not true. That's just the propaganda. That's just the justification for, hey, Bob. I have an idea, I'm going to print the money now, and sometimes I'm going to print extra money and put it in my pocket, and if you try to use somebody else's money, I'm going to put you in prison. That's what's happening here, and everything else is just a story, and there's a lot of negative side effects of that system where we print money and put it in our own pocket. It's not that we just steal, but we cause economic chaos. We cause massive economic destruction, which means your kids are going to die from a disease that would have otherwise be cured. I mean, that's the, that's the end result of economic chaos is we're all working together to try to solve all these crazy problems that we have, right? Diseases and lack of food and, um, you know, not being able to, to uh, communicate together, not being able to get together in person, you know, transportation, all these things are, are problems that cause our world to be less enjoyable, right? Less pleasurable. Um, and uh, a lot of them result in our death, Right. And so we're trying to solve all these problems, and then you have somebody that is a central bank that they want to steal from us, but they can't steal from us through direct taxation, because if they do too much of that, they get an uprising on their hands. They know that from history. Um, So the way that they're able to steal more cost effectively is by legal tender laws that force us to use their crappy currency, and that allows them to print the currency and keep it. The problem is when they print the currency, it completely screws up all the price signals in the economy that we use to figure out what we're supposed to be building next, right? Do I build shoes or do I build a house? What, what do people want? What do people need? Well, prices tell us that. And when they screw with the prices, we end up building a bunch of houses that nobody wants. And that takes years to recover from. Like the chaos is uh, is massive. Uh, we're still, you know, reeling from the 2008 housing crisis. But- If you go back before 2008, just about every seven years, we have a massive, you know, recession, economic downturn. You know, they're always changing the the terms that they use for this because they don't want you to catch on. It's a really repeatable, regular thing. This one was a liquidity (laughs) trap. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Um, And, you know, this actually does kind of expose just how stupid and like... um, vain politicians are right like these guys that are involved in this system their kids and their kids kids are going to die because we haven't figured out whatever technology it is that's going to keep their families alive right that's actually going to improve their quality of life but they're just running around you know raping and pillaging and they're too stupid to realize that's what they're doing But that's why we had to create bitcoin right they were they were taking cryptographers they were throwing them in jail or threatening them we had guys like phil zimmerman that were being prosecuted for exporting munitions to foreign countries because he was an academic that came up with pgp which is just a good way to encrypt data and uh, and those cryptographers had to fight back and they had to come up with a better way to deal with these thugs and uh, that's why we have bitcoin
1: central banking really is the perfect crime too you know because uh, we think of inflation just because fiat monies haven't existed for that long or at least not this long or this this continually' because most fiat monies die after a couple decades but you go back in time and uh, inflation has always existed except back in the day it was the kings and queens clipping money off the gold coins and then recirculating them as their original weight value except back then they didn't call it they didn't have all these fancy names for it, and they didn't try to convince people that it was good for the economy. Uh, that, that's what really the secret sauce of the central banking scam is, is that they've convinced entire generations of people that what the kings used to do to your gold coins is necessary for you and good for your well-being, and without it, the entire economy would collapse. So please thank us for stealing the gold off of your coins before they get passed back out to you yep yep absolutely
0: yeah it does it does have a really long history um and it definitely goes back to maybe even before coin clipping where it was just uh coinage itself right like we used gold uh jewelry nick zabo does a really great job of kind of writing up a lot of this history and investigating it but metals themselves like silver and gold were used as money but as soon as we introduced which was a useful technology coinage uh, that had certain security flaws, and one of those security flaws that caused centralization because you don't want to accept coins from people that you've never seen before. You only want to accept coins that are stamped by somebody that has a good reputation, right? Uh, because it saves you from having to test for the purity and and measure, uh, but it requires trust. It requires that when you see that symbol on the coin, you trust that Bob, the coiner, um, is the Bob that you've worked with before or the Bob that, you know, his, his seal is trustworthy, but that allows thugs to come in and grab Bob by the scruff of the neck and say, Hey, you're going to, uh, you're going to liquidate your reputation for us. Now, what you're going to do is you're going to start using the same symbol, but you're going to put less pure gold in, and we're going to keep the difference. Um, and so it goes all the way back that far. Then you have, uh, you know, people that are, uh or you have governments, right? You have those same thugs that were going and grabbing people by the scruff of the neck and saying, you're going to dumb down the purity or the weight. Um, And they're, they're just saying, okay, we're going to have a monopoly on coinage and, you know, if you know anything about uh, economics, you know that monopolies are not good for the consumer and that they always require violence to enforce. So these guys show up and they say, OK, from now on, all the coins are going to be stamped with Caesar's face. Right. You're, we're not going to allow anybody to use coins that are not stamped with Caesar. Uh, and that's even better because you don't have to grab anybody the scruff of the neck to uh, to say, hey, you're going to dumb it down. Um, because you would stop accepting coins from Bob, right? You'd go, "Oh, okay, Bob's been compromised. He's no longer trustworthy. I'm not going to accept his coins anymore." But this system, where you have a monopoly on coinage, uh, takes it a step further, where you don't have a choice, right? It's legal tender laws. You must accept the coins with Caesar's face printed on it, and that allows Caesar to do whatever the hell he wants with the money, um, including just, you know, debasing it, clipping it, uh, putting holes in it, doing all this nonsense. Hmm and uh, so this history has evolved you know with humanity what's exciting is we may have a way now with bitcoin to have the money to basically communicate value with each other and be able to work together to solve problems without having uh, without having that system just you know completely filled with noise on a regular basis because people are trying to steal it it would be far better if they stole through taxation um, even though it would cause us to fight them off, right? And that's not a bad thing as well. But it would be far less disruptive if they stole through taxation than if they stole through money printing because we're, like, prices are the IP packets of value, right? Prices tell us what to build and what not to build and how to solve each other's problems and work together. And uh, they just introduce noise into that system on such a scale that it, it completely destroys our ability as humans to be productive and make the world a better place. So... You know that's the game, right? The game is how do we create something that's government hard? How do we create something where Caesar or Trump or Obama or whoever's really running the Federal Reserve can't steal our money and screw up all of our signals? Mm -hmm. And something like XRP doesn't even attempt to do that, right? They don't even acknowledge that that's a problem. Something like uh, Ethereum, right? Like they're social justice warriors. They don't care about that stuff, right? They love the state. Right. Um, so what are they doing here? They're just creating noise and confusion and, uh, you know, screwing over some suckers in the process.
1: Yeah. The other little talked about issue there, too, is that Bitcoin is a return to ethical seniorage, you know, like because back in the days of gold, I had to, if I wanted to add gold to the economy, I had to get my butt down into a gold mine and I had to put work into pulling gold out of the earth. And then that could be taken and minted and coined and then circulated. Um Whereas, you know, when the government sort of took over that operation and just started printing paper money and saying, hey, this is worth $100, this sheet of paper that cost me uh, 11 cents to print, that created this whole system of uneth- unethical seniorage. Whereas the Bitcoin emulates the gold model so well, it's it's essentially the same thing. and it kind of came about naturally just because we talked about the economic incentives of being able to provide the security on the network. It was actually really cool that it also returns to an ethical senior age. Senior edge is the creation of money. Uh, for those of you who don't know the, the, that, uh, the profit that you make in the creation of money. So if you look at the federal reserve, the federal reserve, um, I'm just talking to the viewers right now. Cause I know, you know what senior age is. Uh, G- yeah, yeah, but, yeah.
0: No, go for it, man. Uh,
1: the Federal Reserve yeah. just prints value out of thin air, whereas gold, you know, work re- is required to extract that from the earth. Uh, that, that gives a lot more power back to the common man, that profit of seniorage.
0: Yeah, I mean, even even with gold, it is a little bit of a problem, right? Inflation is not ideal. Um, you know, you have people going out and using a lot of human resources and creativity and ingenuity to pull gold out of the ground. And what does that actually do? It doesn't really do anything good right like it's one of the very few products that you can produce that have no positive impact because if it costs 50 cents for a gram or if it costs you know i don't know a a gram of gold buys you a meal um and then somebody goes out and they work really hard they use all this human creativity to, to pull more gold out of the ground um all that does is inflate things to where now you have to use two grams of gold to buy a meal but it didn't actually produce anything of value because money is um it's just a weird item where there if there's more of it, then the prices just change because we use it for signaling. It doesn't actually make anything better if there's more of it um so it it wasn't ideal for that reason the other the other issue with gold just to kind of keep going through the history and get to the federal reserve is that it was really hard to subdivide right like you Mm -hmm. can't a gram of gold is worth more than a meal so you need to have a really tiny piece of that and that's why we use silver and had other problems and the innovation there was banking right where you you uh you drop off your gold at the vault the gold is actually tested, so it kind of solves this weight and purity problem to a degree as well. And then you get a uh, you get a, uh, a receipt, right? You get a, a piece of paper that represents a dollar's worth of gold. Um, and then you can exchange that and move that around. Um, and that worked pretty good. Um, and so, you know, you can see that humans have been working really hard to solve these problems for thousands of years um, and banking at least for hundreds. Um, But then that introduces a problem where the thugs can show up to the bank and basically steal all the money in the Mm -hmm. vault. Um, it's not a good security system for everybody in the town to put all of their gold in one place and just put a thick metal door on there. Not in an age of explosives, right? It just doesn't, the, the math doesn't work out. The cost to attack is so much lower than the cost to get everything out of the vault. Um, and it wasn't too bad, you know, when you just had regular thugs, but when you have the real thugs, the, when the real mafia shows up, they show up in suits and they say, hey, we're not going to, we're not going to shoot you right now we're just going to implement a new banking policy and you're going to want to go along with that because otherwise you're not going to wake up tomorrow. And that banking policy is we're going to take all of the gold, We're going to ship it off to our vaults, um, you know, in uh, Fort Knox or wherever else. Um, But you're going to trust us because we're going to be the central bank. And by the way, we're doing this for your own good, of course. Right. Uh, And we're going to allow you to issue notes based on the gold that we have in the vault. And that's what happened in the United States and happened more than once We're in our third central bank now. So the Austrians and the gold bugs that are saying, hey, we should return back to gold. They really need to think about the fact that gold has these security flaws Mm -hmm. that lead to banking and that lead to central banking. And Mm -hmm. So we don't want to just keep repeating the cycle. We need something better than gold if we don't want to end up back at central banking in four years.
1: Something publicly auditable, too, because with gold, you run into the same fractional reserve temptations. Uh, Because, you know, banks are a business, right? So if I'm a business, it's in my best interest to operate at the best profit margins. And if I have 100 bars of gold in the back and I issue out 100 receipts for gold bars, well shoot, I can double my profits if I just double the receipts. And I know not everybody's going to come withdraw their gold on the same day. So no one will be the wiser if I issue out credit for 200 gold bar receipts and just hope that nobody comes and takes all their gold out at the same time. Uh, And even the central banks have run into this issue now. I mean, if you look at the balance sheets on the Federal Reserve, they've got like $15 billion in gold. And like four trillion in assets, and that's because they just buy up debt, and then they claim that that debt is actually an asset when, in fact, it's a liability. Yep, yep,
0: yeah. I mean, it, it was a little bit of a problem. Like the the story that central banks will tell is that um, that. People, when they were allowed to hand out those receipts, did what you're saying. They, they went fractional reserve crazy. The reality is, is that the free market itself corrects for that. Yes, you do have greasy people that have a temptation to steal, and so we do have banks that hand out more notes than they actually have gold and do that fractional reserve scheme, um, and they push it to a certain degree. Uh, and sometimes they're insolvent and they go out, but that's not a big deal, right? It doesn't matter if a bank here and there goes under because they're greasy. What that does is it tells all of the other consumers, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to put my money in banks at all, right? Maybe I'll keep it under my mattress, which people had a tendency to do, um, or bury it in the backyard, which was actually better from a security standpoint in a lot of ways. Um, Or uh, I'm going to make sure that I put it in banks that tend to be more trustworthy, right? And so you have competition for banks to be more transparent, more uh, audited, all of these sort of things. So the reality is that 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 story of that being the real problem is just the narrative that the central banks have used to justify taking and putting all the gold in their own vault. And you know that's the case because as soon as they put the gold in their vault, the amount of uh, money printing that happened went through the roof as you would expect it to because when you have a bunch of banks competing together for the consumers to drop off their gold they have a huge motivation not to do what you're saying not to print too much money because an employee is going to leak the information or word is going to get out and they're going to get hit and maybe go out of business and they don't really want to go out of business so what they want to do is they you know you could you could say they want to be as greasy as possible to stay in business but that's a huge check right on their ability to be greasy when you have a central bank, there's no check, right? There's no competition. So now I can print as much as I want, and there's nothing that anybody can do about it. And that's exactly what central banks did. And it didn't really even come out that that's what was happening. I mean, just to, to realize like how real time this history is, we're not talking about like mid 1700s. It was uh, Nixon in the 70s that finally had to admit that there was no gold in the vaults up until then, the scam continued and they pretended that they had it. Uh, but that's when they quote closed the gold window and said, yep, yeah, you know, we're running a scam here, but there's nothing you can do about it because you're not going to be allowed to use any other things as money unless you want to go to prison. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's what we've been living, you know, certainly all of your lifetime and uh, you know, most of my lifetime uh, that's the world that we've been living under.
1: Um, yeah, and you brought up a good point too, with the, uh, the banks that, that back in the days when they did hold their own gold and issue out their own currencies, so to speak, um, the free market did a really good job of correcting for the insolvent banks. Uh, But what's unfortunately happened is that the central banking system that has encouraged fractional reserve lending functions as a lender of last resort. And all that stuff that's designed to make you feel the warm and fuzzies inside about your bank account, like the FDIC, at the end of the day, all that does is subsidize failing business models, which is what the banks in, a, in any bank that's ever needed to get bailed out. Which nowadays, for any bank to be competitive at a, on a business level, they have to engage in that credit expansion system. Otherwise, they're not as profitable as the banks that don't. So, well,
0: it's actually it's even worse than that. If you try to um, if you try to create a bank that's not crooked, you're not allowed to do that. Right. I mean, uh, they will not give you a banking license. If you said we want to do, and actually there's an example of this that's not that, that old, uh, just in the last six months, there was a bank that was trying to be a non-fractional reserve bank. So they were going to hold U.S. dollars at a one-to-one ratio for all of the balances that people had. Um, and uh, and they, they, they're, they're, they didn't get their banking license, right? Like as soon as it became clear that these, and it makes sense because the, If you don't believe the narrative that the Federal Reserve is there for you and you believe that it's actually what it's there for, which is to steal from you, the idea that we would, as these thugs, allow somebody to create a bank that was legitimate is not good for our business, right? Everybody would flock to that bank. Um, And how is the Federal Reserve going to profit on a fractional reserve system if there's a bank that's not practicing fractional reserve uh, lending uh, because you and I would obviously go to that bank, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I, I, I have to have money in the bank, U.S. dollars to live off of and to some degree to have savings that's not super volatile. So obviously I would prefer to put my money in the bank that's actually holding it instead of the one that's lending it out at a one to 10. Like, you know, if you add up all the balances on a bank, let's say the bank has $10 billion, um, they have at most a billion dollars, uh, and it's probably more like $500 million. That, that's not what I would prefer as a consumer. I would prefer to put my my money in a bank that's more uh, more safe, right? more conservative. But that makes it very hard for these guys to steal on the scale that they steal. So of course they're not going to say, yeah, you can be part of our mafia. I mean, it would be like, hey, can I take over this neighborhood, but I'm not going to run a protection racket. right? No, dude. No, I don't think that we're going to sign off on that. We kind of like the money flowing.
1: Right. Yeah, you said something in your interview with Tim May that I thought was uh, profound because I'd never considered it in this context. You said that what Bitcoin sets out to do, the scope of it is very narrow. It's to it, it has a very very specific purpose. Um, and kind of Cycling back to what we talked about earlier is that a lot of people come into cryptocurrency with these preconceived notions about what Bitcoin is here to do. Oh, Bitcoin's going to solve the wealth inequality. Uh, Oh, Bitcoin's going to make it easier to transact and put Visa and MasterCard out of business. They attach all of their own thinking about what technology should be able to do in the financial world and attach it to Bitcoin and put all these un- realistic hopes and expectations on it when bitcoin was never created to put visa and mastercard out of business it was designed to take power out of the hands of the central banks i thought that was a very profound um way of putting it the scope of what bitcoin is attempting to do
0: yeah i think i think that happens a lot with technology i mean i've seen this throughout my career it would be like if we said okay we're going to create a semi-automatic rifle and the semi-automatic rifle, it's got a very narrow scope. We have rifles where you can put another round in the chamber every time you want to pull the trigger, right? But we're going to create a rifle that automatically feeds the rounds into the, into the chamber and kicks out the last one so that you can pull the trigger four times in a row, right? Um, and then you have people running around saying, oh, this is going to put us on the moon. And if you're competent as a technologist, you're just like, what? Whoa, whoa, no, this is not a rocket ship. You can't aim this thing at the ground and just shoot a lot of times and get you know escape velocity. This is just to create a gun that shoots multiple times. And Bitcoin's like that, right? Like Ethereum, this world's computer thing, and all of these other crazy stories that people have created, they don't make sense because the only thing we're trying to do here is to create a digital asset that can't be overwritten by the government. Right? We're trying to create something that can be used as money that is government hard. There's nothing else happening. There's no other game in town. Um, and so if anybody says that they're doing something else, and the reason that these fraudsters are saying that they're doing other things is that they don't want to be exposed. They, you know, The Ripple guys do not want to say, hey, we're government hard. Um, we, we can, you know, we can resist government uh, intervention uh, because then they're they're being honest to the point where you could compare. Well, what's easier to uh, what's easier to take over, like 12, 12 computers that are signing transactions that are all in the same government jurisdiction, or you know, how 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 hard would it be to choke these twelve guys next until they did what we told them to versus Bitcoin that has this proof of work system. Uh, that would require that people spend millions of dollars just to prevent a transaction. Like, there's there's no comparison. Um, so they don't want that comparison to be made, and that's why they
1: won't admit that that's really the only game in town. Hmm. That's a good point. Uh, and I, I'm kind of, I, I would consider myself mostly a Bitcoin maximalist, but I'm willing to concede that maybe, you know, just simply out of all the funding that's been generated by cryptocurrency, one of the projects might be able to produce something interesting like maybe internet of things tech or um, mesh network tech or some sort of something it won't compete with bitcoin as a global money but they might be able to produce something of some value
0: yeah i think i think the reason that the 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 more savvy technology people don't even have that much hope is that if you've been around silicon valley you know that there's an inverse relationship between the amount of money that's raised Mm -hmm. and the amount of production that comes out Mm -hmm. Um, and that that kind of comes down to incentives, right? So so let's imagine that uh, that I'm really, you know, I'm I'm Elizabeth Stark, and I'm working at Lightning Labs, and I'm trying to solve a real technical problem, and I'm I'm thinking I want as much ownership of this company long term as possible, so I'm going to raise as little as possible, mm-hmm. right? So she took money from Jack Dorsey of Twitter and some other folks, but she's not stupid. She knows that they're building something that's amazing. So she doesn't want to give away 80, 90% of the, the ownership in this thing. So she raises, I think, $6 million or something, like a very conservative amount. And she hires some really brilliant engineers. And then they just work their butts off for years and years until they, they get something that's legitimate. If you contrast that with something like, um, something like an ICO, from day one, these guys have a hundred million dollars of semi-liquid cash. Like, what? The, why would they even get out of bed? Their incentives right. are totally screwed up. They will never. Pre- and also, I mean, they have a hundred million dollars of you know semi-liquid assets. They have no engineers. They have a story that they've told to investors that's so stupid that the the least savvy technical person is like oh, this is so dumb, right? What would you do if you were in their boat? Would you try to spend the next three years of your life just toiling to try to put something together and maybe recruit? I mean, tr- imagine trying to recruit top te- tech talent, which is very hard to get. Like, it's extremely scarce um, when when it's obvious you're a fraudster, right? Like, you're only going to end up with people like the, the chief cryptographer of Ripple, right? Like, you're only going to end up with these absolute you know, ass clowns that have never made any contribution in any way and are completely incompetent and maybe have a little bit of down syndrome, like something is seriously wrong with most of these technology people that are working for these companies. Uh, That's who you're going to be able to attract. You're not going to pull a top engineer away from Google uh, to work on your fraud. So you have all this money. You have no motivation. You're completely like your talent is in being a fraudster, right? Your talent is in telling a story and getting suckers to show up it's not an actually building anything none of these guys have ever built anything right look at any one of these guys look at vitalik or any of these guys they've never built anything in their life like i've dedicated a couple decades to learning how to build stuff and it's brutally hard right like mathbot.com is my big project um and it's very narrow it's just you know i'm just going to teach math and programming to kids um And it is insanely difficult for me to do that. And these guys, and and I have a good history, right? Like I've pushed out several startups and I've sold them to big companies and made a lot of money doing it. And you guys are using products that I've built, right? And I'm telling you, it's freaking brutal. It's super hard. So these guys that have a ton of money, no motivation, no talent, no experience, no ability to attract tech talent, uh, they're not going to build anything. They're just not.
1: Let's let's shift gears into the mathbot thing. I want to talk a little bit about um, coding cuz you've inspired me a lot actually. It- Because I've always had an interest in computers and coding, and I actually posted something on my Twitter the other day that said, 10 years ago, you know, I had a college career counselor convince me that computer science was too hard, and that I didn't want to pursue a degree in computer science, I should just stick with pre-med, which is what I was doing at the time. um, Because I was fed up with the slave labor aspect of pre-med, and I just wasn't down with the whole, the whole industry is controlled by the government, and I'm just not a fan of it. Um... I wanted to do software design while I got away from it. And now here I am years later teaching myself Python for free on the internet. Uh, and you've kind of been a little bit of an influence on me in that just by kind of saying, look, you know, if you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to provide value, if you want to learn a valuable skill that will do good things for you in your life, build software. Um, can you tell us yeah. how MathBots helps helps do that?
0: Yeah, so, so MathBot is... Um... I mean, the, the, the mission of MathBot is to separate out school and state, right? And the way that we think we can do that best uh, is not by going out and, you know, hitting all the podcasts and explaining that the state doesn't love your children and that it's just a cheap, low-quality daycare and that they don't actually teeth math and just exposing, the, you know, the the nonsense that the school is. The, the, the public and the private school system, it's not any better, right? I mean, there's so much evidence, right? Like SAT scores, they're constantly having to dumb down the SAT tests every year, so that scores stay somewhere around the same. That's not you know, like that fact is easily Googleable. If anybody cares, they would know that. And, uh, you know, it's only people that really don't actually care that are just happy to have an excuse to put their kids in the hands of the state that just keep their eyes closed to that. And they want to sleep good at night. And, you know, frankly, they're probably been so screwed over by all kinds of other ways that they can't even afford not to take advantage of the state indoctrination camps. Um, so I could go out and I could tell all of the people that feel like they can't afford to, uh, To homeschool their kids, that they're being screwed over. Or a better strategy, the cypherpunk strategy, is we're just gonna build a piece of software and we're gonna put it in people's hands that make it so obvious that little kids are learning advanced math and programming easily and they're having fun. And, and that their public school teachers and their private school teachers that are regulated by the government are idiots, and they have no interest in actually teaching math, because the kids walk in the room and they know more than their teachers, right? That's, that's the strategy of MathBot. Um, and it also teaches programming, and the reason for that is that math and programming are the same thing. Math is nothing more than using symbols to solve problems. Um, Programming is using symbols to solve problems too. It's just a little easier to use the word ADD um, instead of using, you know, this weird uh, plus symbol, which, you know, I'm, I'm fine with it, right? Like I'm, I'm in my mid forties. I'm pretty comfortable with the plus symbol, but, uh, but you know, you keep taking that far enough. You introduce Greek letters, all this other stuff. Programmers tend not to do that because it's just a waste of mental space. Mm -hmm. Uh, the mathematics community has tended to be sort of like a guild and really try to make it seem like it's secret and difficult, mm-hmm. and uh, and so they they intentionally use things that create a barrier to entry and make themselves look special. Um, where programmers are like, "I've got work to do here, right? Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this as easy as humanly possible." It's a free market. If you build a programming language that that has Greek letters, not a lot of people are going to use it, right? But we're solving a lot of the same problems, um, so. With MathBot, you start out by just programming. Well, you always program a robot on the screen to solve problems. Mm -hmm. But when you first start out um, and for, you know, the first several hours um, and maybe longer, depending on how old you are, all you're doing is you're using uh, pictures. So you have like a turn right picture. You drag that in and you hit play and the robot turns right. So it's very easy to approach. Uh, But the reality is, is that that is actually, you know, within... I would say within 10 hours of a 10-year-old playing MathBot, they're already programming recursive functions, they're already using conditionals. These are concepts that they won't get until after high school. This is like, you know, uh, computer science level concepts, and they're actually working with it and using it to solve problems. So if we can continue to do that, um, you know, it's, it's definitely going to expose the stupidity of the school system. Hmm. But it's going to do it by just empowering people to have fun uh, learning how to do math.
1: I, I really like how it teaches um, really important mathematical concepts that, in a vacuum, can be really difficult to understand. But if you are actually applying them to something, they're they're not that difficult. It, you know, if you guys don't know what MathBot is, go check it out. Um, you can just go to Google, type in MathBot, go to MathBot.com. It's also on GitHub, I believe, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's an open source project, um, and uh, yeah, you can find it on GitHub. It's in uh, my JW Weatherman
1: uh, repo. Yeah, go go play it um, just for fifteen minutes, and you will see what I'm talking about. Is it? It's uh, it's an educational game, right? So it's don't expect Call of Duty or anything, uh, but. You, you learn while you play it, or at least it exercises your brain because you're solving problems. And if you have kids, I highly, highly encourage you to have them at least check out MathBot. They will probably get hooked on it and they'll want to learn to solve these problems because that's the way our brains are wired. We like solving problems. We crave solving problems. And uh, I know, uh, I think you guys have plans ultimately, right now it's free, but ultimately you're going to charge Bitcoin for it. Actually,
0: we're not we're never going to charge for it. It's always going to be free as it is right now. Um, but like you say, it's not call of duty, right? So one of the one of the problems we ran into, um, and actually, I was working on this uh, before I started uh, getting interested in Bitcoin, and I kind of got stalled because, um, because we did a bunch of user testing, and what we found out was that kids that had parents that said, hey, we'll, we'll buy you an ice cream if you pass the recursion level or if you learn how to do loops or conditionals, um, those kids did really, really well. The other kids that didn't have any external motivation... Um, and this is sort of like, you know, I don't know, there's an analogy to Bitcoin's proof of work here, uh, if we really want to get nerdy. But, um, but you know, these, these kids that didn't have any external motivation, uh, they would play it, you know, and once it started getting a little bit hard, you know, once once you have to rub more than five brain cells together to pull it off, they'd want to go play Angry Birds or something else, right? You, you need a little bit extra Um, kick. And it's not weird, because that's how we are too, right? Like, I wouldn't build software if I wasn't going to get more than just the joy of problem solving out of it. Uh, I'm going to get paid, right? I'm going to get people that that are going to say that I'm awesome because they like the product. I'm going to get parents that are sending me videos saying, you know, great things, right? So I get all of these external rewards to solve problems. It's weird that we expect kids not to uh, get any external rewards to solve problems. So It'll always be 100% free, but as soon as the technology is far enough along, and this kind of shows how early we are, right? Like, without Lightning, you can't do small transactions in any cryptocurrency unless it's a fraudulent one. Mm -hmm. Um, And even now, even if we don't use Lightning, we need to use something uh, because we don't want to be custodial. Uh, but, But so we're still waiting on a little bit of technology, even in Bitcoin, which is by far the most advanced uh, cryptocurrency project. Everything else is just faking it. But, um, but it shows how early we are. Like even, even MathBot is waiting on some features in Bitcoin. But what we want to be able to do is if you have a kid or a grandkid or a neighbor and you want them to learn algebra. We want you to be able to basically pay fifty dollars for algebra, and then we will pass on forty dollars to the kid. You know, maybe a dollar or two at a time as they master different algebra topics. And we'll keep you know ten percent. I guess it would be forty-five bucks we'll pass on to the kid. So the plan is to to keep ten percent and then distribute that to people that have contributed to MathBot uh, developers. You know, people that have helped advertise those sort of things. Um, but that'll always be optional, and that's just something extra you can do that manually now and i encourage people to do it if you have a kid or a grandkid or a neighbor kid tell them you'll give them 20 bucks if they pass all the math bot levels Um, and you'll be surprised how much that has an impact on their life and their confidence and uh you know, let a public school teacher tell them they're stupid after they've programmed recursive functions. Like you're, you're inoculating these guys to ever feeling dumb uh, when it comes to math and programming. So it's, it's a really cost-effective solution, but we want to be able to automate that. So you send us, you know, 20 bucks and we pass on
1: 19 bucks to the kid. That's awesome. That's awesome. So mathbot.com guys, go and check it out. Have your kids play it. I'm telling you, you can do your kids no wrong if you're teaching them math and programming. I mean, software is not going away. It's going to be the fastest growing field for a long time. Get your kids into this stuff. And because I guarantee the schools aren't doing it. I know they weren't doing it when I was younger. And I know they haven't gotten any better since then. They've probably gotten a lot worse. Um, So, JW, where can people find you if if they want to see more of your content or hear more about you?
0: Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so if you follow me at uh, jwweatherman underscore, um, that's a good way to talk to me. Uh, you can also go out to uh, jwweatherman.com for the Bitcoin threat model, and if you're interested in taking my uh, class on cryptocurrencies, we cover you know the history, the economics, and the technology that you need to know what the heck is going on, um, you can get that at jwweatherman.com forward slash uh, class, C-L-A-S-S.
1: Okay. And I know you're also on YouTube too. So guys go check out his channel, subscribe, show him some support. He puts out a lot of really good content, a lot of interviews with a lot of pretty famous people. So I'm surprised you don't have more subscribers over there, but
0: me too. Me too. What the hell? No, uh, that's uh, JW. Let's see. That's youtube.com forward slash JW weatherman show.
1: Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on JW. I really enjoyed this. So hopefully we can do it again sometime.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah, it was great. I really appreciate you having me on.
1: All right, so that's the episode. Hopefully you enjoyed that. I think JW is an extremely intelligent guy. Always love talking to him. If you guys enjoyed this podcast and you want to follow us, if you want to subscribe to everything that we're going to be doing in the future, just head on over to BitcoinEchoChamber.com where you can catch all of our feeds and subscribe if you want, or if you want to support the show, if you want to become a patron, you can do that over at the Bitcoin Echo Chamber website. Once again, that's BitcoinEchoChamber.com. I look forward to hearing from you guys and stay tuned for the next episode.